have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John. So the Apostle John has written five different books in the Bible. Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. In the book of John, we see him addressing something that's on the horizon in the late, late, late 1st century A.D., Gnosticism. And so the belief was Jesus was God, but he wasn't a person. He wasn't a human. He was a, a phantom, a spirit. If he walked on the sand, he wouldn't leave footprints kind of thing. And so he addresses that. Today it's been reversed. The cults believe that Jesus is a man, was a man, but not God. And so Jesus is fully man, fully God. Um, another thing he mentions is, as we've been going through the epistle today, we'll close it out, but as we've been going through the epistle, he talks about us saying that we have no sin, and if we say that we have no sin, then we're deceived. Of course, we stumble and struggle just until the day the Lord takes us home. But we want to walk in the light as God is in the light, and that creates fellowship with God. He gets on over towards chapter 2, definitely in chapter 3, and he says that we have no sin. We don't habitually walk in sin. We do not habitually practice a lifestyle of sin. And so it's kind of neat as I've just watched and observed and even experienced myself as a Christian. Um, you know, God has a way of, of, of getting us to a place where even when we're maybe stuck a little longer than we cared to be, either, you know, we come to our senses like the prodigal and we run home or God gets our attention in one way or another, and he exposes it, and, you know, we're embarrassed, and we got all that stuff, but we run to the loving arms of our daddy, and he receives us and restores us, and it's just a beautiful thing. So um, even though we do struggle with sin, if you will, on a daily basis, we don't walk in habitual sin. And so John is, is clear on teaching that. Um, I'm trying to think of the things that he addresses because he's kind of finalizing it here in chapter Five. He talked about our love for God, and if we don't love people, then we don't love God. He's going to reiterate that a little bit. He talked about, already he had mentioned that if we love God, we obey His commands. He's going to, he's going to reiterate that. Um, there's a controversial set of verses in the New King James Bible. We'll talk about that. And I think that's about it. Title of our message, Got Jesus. I want you to think of all the beliefs that exist in the world. We have three world religions. Three world religions. What are they? Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. So the, those are the three monotheistic, one God religions of the world. Of course, we have many... Um, denominations within Christianity, and we have cults that exist. A cult, by definition, is a deviation from Orthodox Christianity. And they'll usually flip it real quick on two essential things. One is salvation by faith alone, through, by grace alone, through faith alone. Uh, it'll be a works righteousness kind of thing. And they'll definitely mess it up on the deity of Jesus Christ. They'll say that Jesus was not God. Um, that's important as well because 
I don't know if you guys have seen the bumper sticker that says coexist, and then it has all of these different symbols for different beliefs or religions. And we can't coexist because we contradict. And so there is an exclusivity with God, and the fact that he made one way is pretty awesome. Uh, but there is one way, and we're going to see that in this chapter, and so that's why I mentioned it. So this is 1 John chapter 5. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us through it. We thank you for this epistle, Lord, this letter, just uh, so powerful, short but sweet. We pray that you open up our eyes, open up our ears, and may we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So in verse 1, this idea of being begotten is, I mean, uh, born of God is John Chapter 3, being born again or born from above, born of God, okay? It's a supernatural birth. You're born once, natural birth. You're born of the Spirit twice. If you're born twice, you die once. If you're born once, you die twice, according to the book of Revelation. And so, too fast. Born twice, born and born again. Natural birth, spiritual birth. You die once to live forever with God. To be resurrected to new life. If you, die, if you are born once and you're not born again, you die twice. You die a physical death and a spiritual death. And I noticed you talked about being born of... Born of God is born from above or born of the Spirit. Those are all synonyms for one another. No problem. John chapter 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. <clears throat> so now, everyone who loves him, notice who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. So... It's interesting, in Islam, they pray a prayer every day that basically says, among other things, God has neither begotten nor is he begotten. So God has never born anybody and neither is he born. An absolute contradiction to what the Bible teaches about Jesus. And this chapter is extremely exclusive as it relates to salvation in Christ alone. So very important that we understand that. In verse 2, again, he's reiterating this idea. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. In John 14, 15, the Bible says, if you love me, keep my commandments. In John 15, 10, the Bible says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 3, he piggybacks on that and he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So are his commandments a burden to you? The reason they're not a burden is because they free us up. They deliver us. They set us free. And so when we are in bondage to our sin, when we are in bondage, to thinking that doesn't reflect God or his truth or his heart for us, then God wants to expose that. God wants us to see 
that that's not what it's about. So he convicts us. He lets us know. He'll share a command with us. He'll, he'll give us a word. He'll give us a truth so that we can then recognize, wow, the Lord is freeing me up. A um, couple scriptures I wrote on this, again, from John's gospel. In John chapter 8, verse 32, the Bible says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Right? And then he goes on in verses 34 through 36, and he says, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And so that's what the Lord wants to do through his commands, through his convicting us, through his, um, his light exposing the darkness. And again, a lot of times we're looking at acts, we're looking at behavior. I think so much, of mo so much more of it is our thought life. Just, just how we, how we just, the enemy is just right there shooting darts, shooting darts, shooting darts. And we're buying into it hook, line, and sinker. And before you know it, we're just in this bondage. And the Lord wants to expose that stuff and deliver us from that stuff. The world's desire is what? To squeeze us into its mold. But God wants to deliver us from that. And so I've watched many, many a person, many a Christian, just they begin to get just degrees off, degrees off, degrees off in their thinking. And before you know it, they're just moving in a direction apart from God. They can't pray. They have no peace. There's no joy. In John chapter 1, he says, I'm writing this so that your joy would be full. Like these are things that God wants for his kids. These are things that God has in store for us. And I find it interesting. I remember teaching a chapel in the high school. And I remember just the mindset of the high schooler was, I would be free if I could do whatever I want, whenever I want. And do you know that that's what the Bible calls bondage? If I was left to my own devices, if I would never get caught in the things that I can get away with, if I could just do whatever my heart desires, I would be free. I wouldn't have parents telling me what to do. I wouldn't have teachers and administrators telling me what to do. I wouldn't have grades to be accountable for. I wouldn't have my room and, and my chores and all of that stuff. You'd be in bondage. You'd be in bondage. Because you'd move in a direction away from God and what he has for you. And we have a tendency to think that God's ways, that moving in the direction of God, that walking in obedience to what God is calling us to, we have a tendency to believe that that is bondage. And Jesus says, no, that's actually freedom. I'm delivering you from yourself. I'm delivering you from this world. I'm delivering you from Satan's plan. That's actually freeing you up. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So let's be careful with even our own flesh that wants to do its own thing. God wants to free us up. God wants to definitely deliver us. Verse 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but, the, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so we know that faith comes by hearing and that by the word of God, right? So we are doing something good so that our faith can grow and increase. And then in Hebrews eleven six, without faith, impossible to please God, right? Those who come to him must believe that he is and a rewarder of those 
who diligently seek him. Verse 6. Interesting verse. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Now, this idea of water and blood, um, the oldest belief interpretation of this was uh, that Jesus came by water and blood uh, baptism, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, and uh, his crucifixion. So from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry, this is the one who came by water and by blood. And there's all kinds of different you know, ideas and notions of what the water and the blood so probably the best in my notes uh, explanation, though there are good points to some of the other ideas, is the oldest recorded Christian understanding of this passage, first recorded by the ancient Christian Tertullian. Most likely John means water of Jesus' baptism and blood of his crucifixion. All right, so seven and eight, a couple controversial, if you will, verses. Let's read them. For there are three witnesses that bear um, witness in heaven. The original would end right there at that word heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on the earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are agree as one. So it seems like what happened was these guys that were trying to help God out and put the Trinity in three, in one little you know, section in the Bible there, decided to fit it right here for whatever reason. No early manuscripts have these two verses in them. So this wouldn't be a verse that you want to use to be able to point to somebody who doesn't believe and there is one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There are plenty other verses that you can do that with. I will name them just so that they're on the recording. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. Matthew 28, 19. Luke 1, 35. John 1, 33 and 34, John 14, 16 and 26, John 16, 13 through 15, John 20, 21 and 22, Acts 2, 33 through 38, Romans 15, 16, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Galatians 6, 4, 6, Ephesians 3, 14 and 16, through 16, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, and 1 Peter 1, 2. Again, it's for the recording, not you speed writers. <laughs> you can take my notes if you wanted all those verses. Um, but I think it's just important that we understand that those, let, let me read you actually the note because when I put a study together, I know that there are Bible study people who study their word and they like to hear things like this. So let me, let me at least give you some. The words in question occur in no Greek manuscript until the 14th century, except for one 11th century and one 12th century manuscript in which they have been added to the margin by another hand. In the first few hundred years of Christianity, there were many the theological debates regarding the exact nature and understanding of the Trinity. In all those debates, no one ever once quoted these words in question from 1 John 5, verses 7 and 8. If they were originally written by John, it seems very strange that no early Christian would have quoted them. In fact, though none of the ancient Christians quote from this verse, several of them do quote from 1 John 5, 6 and 1 John 5, 8. Why skip verse 7, especially if it is such a great statement of the Trinity? So, in all ancient translations, Syriac or Arabic, 
Ethiopian, Coptic, Sahidic, Armenian, Slavonian, and so forth. This disputed passage is not included. Only the Latin Vulgate, uh, in the Latin Vulgate, does it appear. So let me give you a couple notes so that you guys don't worry. Since the Greek text of the New Testament that Erasmus printed became one of the Greek texts used to make the King James Bible, these added words became part of the King James Bible. Passages like this give us no reason to fear that our New Testaments are unreliable. In the entire New Testament, there are only 50 passages which have any sort of question regarding the reliability of the text, and none of those are the sole foundation for any Christian doctrine or belief. If 50 passages sounds like a lot, see it this way. No more than one one-thousandth of the text is in question at all. And so these are things that like we study and we get to look at how we got the New Testament. And it's fascinating how God has preserved the Word of God. And again, you know, different uh, manuscripts are going to be used by different uh, people who are going to interpret the Bible. So they're going to use the best manuscripts, the most voluminous or voluminous of manuscripts and in this case it probably just doesn't belong there so there's a note on the bottom of uh, every Bible if, if it's a New King James or King James that would say not found in the earliest manuscripts okay moving on 9 through 13 if we receive the witness of men the witness of God is greater for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his son he who believes in the Son has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And so that's where I get the title, Got Jesus, because you got Jesus, you got life. You don't got Jesus, you ain't got life. Verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If you broke this verse down, be sweet. You know, first of all, this is our confidence. And we have this confidence in God. It's not in us. It's not in our worthiness. It's not in our faithfulness. It's not in the fact that we do great or don't do great. It's in God. Our confidence is in God. Because our confidence is in God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I think this goes along well with John 15, 7. It says, if you, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. I like the way Pastor Chuck explained it. God already knows what he's going to do. We pray because Jesus set the model and we're commanded to pray. Through prayer, it's a relationship with God. We get to communicate with God. We get to talk to God. We get to let him in to the things that hurt us, to the things that overwhelm us, to the things that bring us joy. We get to have this relationship with God through communication. That communication is called prayer. So this is what God does. God puts it upon your heart and my heart to pray for something. 
that he already wants to do. He answers that prayer in the affirmative, and you participate and cooperate with God, and you're blown away that God is answering your prayers. Isn't that a neat plan? Pastor Chuck Smith said this, every answered prayer is born in the heart of God. That's where it comes from. Every answered prayer is born in the heart of God. Why? He wants to cooperate with you. He wants to participate with you. He wants you to cooperate and participate with him. And so as we get to know God through his word, we begin to know the things that God likes, the things that God wants, the things that just, man, Lord, this is, this is right up your alley, Lord. And so we're moved to pray. I think it's pretty neat. Now, interesting couple verses. Check this out. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions, verse 15, that we have asked of him. 16, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Interesting verse, right? Tough verse to, you know, truly know exactly what it means. I think sometimes people reach a point of no return. I find it interesting. I was thinking about the Calvary distinctives today. I was thinking about five-point Calvinism. I was thinking about Arminianism. I was thinking about these two extremes. Basically, one says you can lose your salvation. The other one says that God only died for those who would be saved and that you cannot resist his grace. In fact, in five-point Arminianism, it's called, no, no, five-point Calvinism, it's called irresistible grace. If there is such a thing as irresistible grace, then I don't have a free will. I know I have a free will because I sin daily. I resist God plenty. And so the idea of salvation and irresistible grace, we don't just buy. So I like this balance that Calvary Chapel takes where it's, yeah, right in the middle. Yeah, we believe that. All of them or none of them. Yeah, that's us. Yeah. I believe that <laughs> we're going we're gonna to be saved, that God gave us eternal life. And when we go home to be with Jesus, it's because God did it. And thank you, Jesus. I think it was, man, I forgot. Uh, I think it's like way, way, way back. Mm, what father? I want to say Augustine, who came, was the first one that came up with this idea that <clears throat> on the outside of the doors of heaven or this banquet that we're going to go into, you know, we'll call it the marriage supper of the Lamb or whatever, but we find ourselves in heaven, but we're walking through the gates. We're walking and we're about to go to heaven. And on that side right there, it says, come one, come all. Anybody, just freely choose. You want to come? Come on in. And then you go in and you turn around and you look at the back side and it says, chosen before the foundations of the world. Like God chose you to be here. And there's a place card at the table with your name on it. You're like, Jesus knew I was coming. Man, he made this a long time ago. You know? And so I don't know. Our brains, I don't think it'll ever fully... Uh, comprehend it, understand it. A sin leading to death. Any, just think of any bad sin that people are just so in bondage to and engulfed in and they just don't want to stop and God has tried to get their attention over and over and over again and they're just like, no, God's like, yeah, I'm taking you home. I'm done. So 
don't pray for that person, but you can pray for people who are committing sin who are not leading to death. And again, so wherever you slice that up, however you divide that, I prayed for my brother on his deathbed dying of AIDS. The Lord took him home. I prayed for my other brother dying on his bed, uh, liver cancer from a 13-year heroin addiction. God took him home. So, you know, I mean, sometimes the Lord just would rather take him home. Verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. This in the Greek is, just like we've talked about, habitual sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols.